We've got a tall order. You've been very patient over these last few days. You've kept going. Thank you very much for that. That's an encouragement to me. Um, some people couldn't take the pace. They've gone back to London. Um, there have been times when I felt like doing that. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and mercy. Your mercies are new every morning. Father, there are many things we don't understand, but the Lord Jesus is our rock and our refuge. We trust him and long that as we get to know him, we will become more like him and we will be able to live for you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Almost exactly 50 years ago, on the 28th of August, 1963, so in the anniversary is just coming up, was the Great March on Washington. And many speakers were there, but perhaps the one speaker who is most remembered for that day is Martin Luther King. And he inspired a generation and the world with that extraordinary speech. It was only about 13 or 14 minutes, but it rippled out across the world and influenced a generation and beyond. Here's a little clip from it just to get into the mood. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creeds. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. vision, that dream, with the words of the old spiritual, free at last, free at last. It was a great moment and had a profound impact and was the thing that led to his assassination. When he appropriated the biblical passion for equality and freedom, he was right. The question is, when that freedom march will finally be complete. Because for America, and indeed for the whole of the post-Enlightenment West, our big problem is that we've thought we've known what we were being freed from, but we're confused and have no idea as to what we're freed for. And we've got a big chunk to skate over, but... Uh, this is where Paul has to sort out the other arrow in the false teachers in Galatia in their quiver. They've got two lines of attack. 
And until now, in the first uh, four chapters, Paul has been mainly dealing with the problem of legalism. And uh, the verse we're going to focus on tomorrow morning in our family service, just verse 21 of chapter 2, I do not set aside the grace of God because if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Righteousness, being made right with God, being justified in relationship with God, cannot be by our efforts. It can only be by grace. At the beginning, in the middle, at the end. But the Judaizers had a very easy comeback, and in fact, they had a very good point. They said, Paul, you mustn't teach this. It's dangerous to teach this because it'll lead to the most appalling immorality. If people think, oh, well, I'm going to be forgiven anyway, they think then I can sin blithely. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. I'm forgiven. In other words, the biggest fear and the strongest motivation for legalism is the concern about license. In other words, that people will just do whatever they want and it'll lead to all kinds of horrendous social, church, individual problems. You know, just think what it'd be like if people are just sort of released to do whatever they want, you know, get away you know, scot-free because, oh, well, I'll be forgiven. It doesn't matter. He's a God of grace. He died for me. Jesus died for me and my sins. I'm fine. I'm sorted. I'm okay. Now, the thing is, that's true. He did die for my sins. And the, the, the theme of Galatians 1 to 4 is that in Christ we are safe. We have security. We are his. But does that mean I should not battle with my sins? Well, Paul's challenge is to prove that the God of grace and the gospel of grace defeats both legalism and license. And the key is to understanding what true freedom is. What is true freedom? Because the reality is that our culture doesn't have a clue. The West doesn't have a clue. America's great watchword is for liberty. But liberty for what? The Enlightenment in Europe is all about liberty, casting off the old yokes. But for what? We know what we're freed from, so we think. We don't know what we're freed for. So chapter 5, verse 1 it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Oh, well, that sounds obvious, doesn't it? You know, he's just saying the same thing. Why have you been set free? Oh, to be free. What does he mean? Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery again. What is the freedom we've been freed for? Well, it's freedom from sin. But here is the bitter irony. Philip Yancey uh, says this in one of his books, in modern life, those things that teenagers do to express their freedom, tobacco, alcohol, drugs, pornography, become their relentless masters. Because the irony is that the things we think we do in freedom enslave us. And it's not just teenagers. These are the forms of self-initiated slavery throughout modern London life. We just don't see what we're getting ourselves into. Well, we started out in the 60s. Let's stay in the 60s for a little bit longer. I'm going to play you a song from Cat Stevens, 
otherwise known as Yusuf Islam now, or just Yusuf, I think he is. He's, he's, he's now so famous, he gets just one name. Um, so he's just Yusuf. Um, his first album from 1967. Um, and uh, I just want to ask, has anything changed in 50 years? Watch them run down the platform one and the eight-thirty train to Matthew and Son. pop songs like they used to. <laughs> it's perfect, just three minutes of perfection, absolutely spot on. But nothing's changed. In fact, the IT revolution has just made it worse. The things we think bring us freedom actually enslave us. And twas ever thus. What we have in these two final chapters is a series of paradoxes, things that appear contradictory but aren't when you live them out. And the first picks up arguments we've already seen. Basically, yesterday we were thinking about and the day before how before we had Christ, we were enslaved. In Christ, we are now free. So the first point is, whatever you do, don't go and be a slave again. You're free, so don't be burdened again. And this, I could summarize, as who I am before God. So we're picking up the ideas of identity before God we were thinking about yesterday. So verse 2, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, in other words, that is a sort of uh, a summary of taking on the whole of the law. If you let yourselves be circumcised, then Christ will be of no value to you at all. Because it's saying Christ isn't enough. Again, I declare to every man, I mean, Paul is desperate, he's passionate, he knows about this stuff, this is his background. He spent years chewing on it before he went into sort of wide public ministry. He knew that his big job was taking the gospel to the Gentiles. He had wrestled with this stuff. If anybody was likely to stick with the old pharisaical way of thinking about the law, it would have been Paul. He killed in its name. But now he's saying, verse 3, I declare to everyone who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated, or as we say in English, obliged, obliged to obey the whole law. The whole thing. So far, so good. That's picking up everything we've seen. There's nothing new there. But uh, then it's developed in verse 5. He takes it on now. And we're getting to the big nitty-gritty question that everybody's been thinking about. So does it matter how I live? How do I live like this? Is it possible? Verse 5. Through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Do you see? Righteousness is not something I can do. It's something for which we hope by the Spirit, because it's a gift. Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. And basically these two chapters are great chapters of the Spirit as we think about what He does. The Spirit's not an it, by the way. He's personal. When the Spirit, as we saw yesterday, comes to take up residence... He's not a squatter. He comes to take up residence. 
And basically, this is just to pick up what um, Paul has sort of hinted at about the Spirit so far in Galatians. I think that's in your booklets. <clears throat> but we've seen that in chapter 3, uh, you know, um, we've received the Spirit not by works but by faith. We receive the Spirit because we trust God. It's out of grace. In chapter 3 again, basically it's by faith in Christ we receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes by promise about the future. Chapter 4, we've seen how the Spirit of God's Son enables us to call God Abba, Father. We are adopted because of the Spirit. And in chapter 4, there was that weird thing about Sarah and Hagar, and Sarah's son was born by the Spirit. In other words, the result of promise and grace, a birth takes place. At its basis, at its heart, there is no such thing as what some people say, a Jesus Christian and a, a spirit Christian. You can't be a Christian without the Spirit. If you are in Christ, if you are clothed with Christ, the Spirit is in you. So far, so good. Now, what all they have in common is the Spirit's work in our conversion. Or as Jesus puts it in John 3, you have to be born again by the Spirit the start of the Christian life. What we find now in chapters 5 and 6 is the continuation, the reality of the Christian life is how the Spirit works, why we wait for the kingdom hope. And what is this hope that we wait for? Verse 5, it is the gift of righteousness. It is perfection on a plate. That's quite a gift. Perfection is offered on a plate. Do you want it? And we can't see anything. We can't necessarily feel anything. I can remember, I can't remember exactly the date when I became a Christian when I was 18, but I, I didn't feel anything. Sometimes becoming a Christian makes your life harder. Zia was talking about that, and I know many people in Turkey and other places for whom actually becoming a Christian has seriously messed up their lives. It's a promise. The question is, do we trust the promise giver? Faith is trusting God to keep his promises. One of those promises is righteousness by the Spirit. And the question now is what the faith that trusts God looks like. Verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, when you consider the profound and costly love that we've been shown, that's fair enough, isn't it? The love is what the Spirit will grow in us as we grow in the family likeness into which we've been adopted. You know, when people are adopted into families, they don't tend to look like their adoptive parents. But the amazing thing about being in God's family is as time goes on, He is at work making us more and more into the family likeness. Again, it's a promise. We'll think more about that in a moment. But this is not what the Judaizers taught. So in verse 8, Paul describes them as persuasive, influential, you know, like a little yeast in a whole loaf. You just need a tiny bit in the dough, and it makes the whole thing rise. After all, there is something attractive about being told, come on, put the effort in. You can do it. You know, the sort of um, rugby coach on the sidelines, come on. That's how the world works. Surely that's how God works. Well, you've heard the old heresy, haven't you? God only helps those who help themselves. Nonsense. The wonder of grace is that he helps those who can't help themselves. Without that, I'd be gone. 
I'd be lost. Because I can't help myself sometimes, often, all the time. But this is why the grace gospel is such a threat to those who rely on their own achievements. Nobody likes to be told that they've been wasting their time, do they? You know, all that effort you've been put in, getting circumcised. Imagine if you'd got circumcised as a Gentile. You know, uh, the memory is fairly acute. You're not going to forget that in a hurry. And imagine Paul comes along and says, why did you bother? What? Verse 11, brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. The offense of the cross? Surely the cross is wonderful. How can it be offensive? Well, take care. Now, there are some Christians, I suspect they don't live in the Middle East and parts like that, but somewhere else, that some Christians seem to search persecution out as if it's a mark of their resilient faith and their keenness. They're so valiant for truth that actually they are obnoxious and graceless. That's not what Paul's talking about. Now, the persecution those sort of people get is perfectly explicable and probably deserved. Now, Paul is persecuted because he preaches grace. Verse 12, he gets pretty crude here. As for those agitators, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You know, don't just stick with circumcision, go the whole lot. It's actually pretty graphic in the Greek, but I'll spare anybody's blushes. I mean, he's saying, look, you know, if you're going to circumcise, don't stop there. Still not going to help you. So what is the only answer to trying to be good? Is it possible to be good? Well, the answer is certainly not legalism. It's not laying down some laws and having policemen who go around protecting and guarding those laws and kicking people up the backside when they fail. There are churches like that. There are churches where people are too ashamed to admit their failure. A legalist church will always lead to hypocrisy or despair, or both. Hypocrisy, because people try to pretend they actually are keeping the law. Despair, because they recognize they can't. That's not good news. Remember, we've been thinking all week, the gospel is by definition good news. One of my favorite novelists, I've sometimes quoted him before, um, is Dave, Douglas Copeland, Canadian writer. Uh, he was the one who popularized the phrase Generation X, uh, which describes anyone born between roughly 1960 and 1980. And uh, um, his sort of big sort of fame-bringing book was called Generation X. And he's written a whole load of others, and I think, he, I think he's brilliant. Some of us are a bit hit and miss, but some of them are just quite brilliant. The most striking... <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. The most striking is called uh, a book simply called Life After God. And it's a collection of short stories. And one of these stories is called In the Desert. And on the first page after its title page, we're confronted, confronted by a whole page with just these words on it. You are the first generation raised without religion. The interesting thing is, Copeland actually has very mixed feelings about that. He doesn't necessarily think it's a good thing. He doesn't want to go back to the old ways, but he doesn't think, he does think we're seriously missing something. And later in the book, the last story is called Life After God. It's the title short story, and it's about a bloke called Scout. And um, Scout 
um, says this in this uh, story, Life After God. We are living creatures. We have religious impulses. We must. And yet, into what cracks do these impulses flow in a world without religion? It is something I think about every day. Sometimes I think it is the only thing I should think about every day. And this leads to the famous breathtaking statement at the end of the book. It's, a, it's one of those statements that preachers love to quote. Um, and yet sometimes I feel they actually haven't read the whole story and understood why it comes at its end. But this is how the short story ends. Now, here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God, that I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem capable of giving. To help me to be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness. To help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. The story then ends very ambiguously. He dives into freezing water. He's taken all his clothes off and he dives into freezing water. And you don't know whether he's committing suicide or it's a kind of baptism. And Copeland deliberately mixes the metaphors and imagery. And it just ends. I need God to help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. I think Paul knew that. I think I know that. I think many Christians are simply blasé and ignorant about that. I need God to help me to be good because I can't do it. The potential's there. The desire is there. The things I want to do, I just don't do. A legalist will send me into denial or despair. The gospel will lead me to rejoice. So I'm safe who I am before God. I'm free. I've been set free by Christ. But, but what about in myself? Well, secondly, you are free, so don't indulge the flesh. Verse 16, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He doesn't say live by the Spirit's rules. He says live by the Spirit. In other words, in dependence upon God, relying on Him, depending and not earning. Relationship and not rule-keeping. Then here comes the twist, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. Do you see the irony? You are freed from slavery in order to be slaves. Slaves not to ourselves, but slaves of love to others. 
That's why Paul quotes Jesus' famous summary of the law there in verse 14. Love is the summary of the law. The total, the behavior in verse 15 that he has seen, and I guess we see in all souls, and every church around the world knows, completely undermines that. Just as the sort of backbiting proves the law's total inability to change people, so it proves people's total inability to obey the law. And so we still ask, how on earth do we do this? Well, we live by grace, daily depending on the Spirit to transform us. We start each day saying, Lord, I don't think I'm going to get through this. I can't do it. The night was bad, but I fear the day will be worse. I can't do this. I need you to help me love. And Jesus replies, I know. I love you. I'm with you. You see, the mark of grace is that it embraces failures. I think a key marker of a church that is full of grace is that a church that knows what to do with failure. What do we do as all souls with failures? If all souls can't cope with failures, then I'm out of here. Because <laughs> I failed. Religiously. But Jesus says, cling to me, we'll work on this together. I'm very fond of you, you know. I'll serve you so that you're free to serve. I'll love you so that you're free to love. I'll love you so much that you'll just want to love. And this is the difference. Basically, as the Spirit transforms us and we work in Him, it's not that I need to do these things or that I have to do these things, but that I want to do these things. There's an amazing old story of some strangers on a train in the 1920s. It's one of those lovely old trains with compartments. And um, uh, suddenly, one of the young men in the compartment started screaming, and his eyes glazed over. His whole body was shaking. He was clearly in terror. Instantly, another man who was with him, clearly his friend, started um, you know, unbuttoning his collar, started hugging him, holding him, soothing him with gentle words. After a few minutes, this man had calmed right down. The friend gave him some medication, a glass of water, and soon he drifted into a sleep, a deep sleep as the train made its journey. And um, obviously the other people in the compartment were fairly sort of disturbed by this, and uh, um, so the man felt that he owed them an explanation. And he said, well, this man who's sleeping, Harry, I owe my life to him. You see... We were in the trenches in the First World War together. We fought alongside each other. We'd known each other since childhood. Um, and I was badly wounded in no man's land, and basically I was thinking, right, that's it. 
Harry saw me and he risked everything to come out of the trenches, come and pick me up and gather me and bring me back. Uh, but as just as he was about to reach the trench, there was another shell that exploded, leaving Harry badly wounded himself. I made a full recovery. Harry never did. He was permanently physically and psychologically scarred. As a result, he would frequently have panic attacks for sometimes no reason at all. But because Harry did that for me, at great personal cost, I count it as nothing less than a privilege and honor to do everything I can to serve him. It's the only fitting response to what he did. I don't resent it one minute. I'm here because of him. He loved me. And so I love him. There is nothing I wouldn't do for Harry. Of course, someone uh, helping somebody who is sick requires professional help. Well, in our battle with our sin sickness, we need professional help. From the master resistor of temptation himself, the Spirit of Jesus. And because of him, when we rely on him, we have the power to do three things. The first is to fight. Verse 17, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you're, you are not to do whatever you want. You are, if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. In other words, you can do this. Now, I think instant gratification is one of the great diseases of the modern world, uh, basically because we can get instant gratification. If we want something, we can download it immediately. It's not a particularly modern idea, though. Here's an ad from the 1950s. Well, could you wait with one of those rather revolting-looking biscuits? <laughs> yeah, I think I could on that one, but anyway. <laughs> um, but that's the spirit of the age. Or it's like the old um, access cards, you remember? Your flexible friend takes the wanting out of waiting. No, the waiting out of wanting. I always get that the wrong way around. Takes the waiting out of wanting. <laughs> and the longer one holds out, the harder it becomes. It's harder it is to keep going. It's one thing to resist eating a biscuit for a minute. It's another for an hour. It's another for a week. For a lifetime... But what actually, this is interesting, what actually is the mark of the Spirit in this battle? You'll be pleased to know it is not perfection. It's not perfection. It's conflict. That is the mark of the Spirit here. A fight is going on. Without him... The battle will be pretty one-sided. I would do what I want. And you win some and you lose some. Progress, not perfection. A mark of the Spirit is a fight. It's not necessarily triumphal victory every minute of the day. If it is, then I'm out of here. I've blown it too many times. But a mark of the Spirit is the fight. Now, here's the weird thing. The weird thing is that gratifying our sinful nature might, on the outside, actually look like morality. 
people on the outside might actually be quite impressed. Because you see, the reality is I can do the right things, but for completely the wrong reasons. So religiosity, looking good on the outside, being respectable, being a Pharisee, is no guarantee that you're growing in grace. God sees the heart. He knows. You can't kid him. Okay, you can kid me and kid everybody else. You can't kid God. Fess up. Get real. This is a hard spiritual battle. And I guess for many of us, even here in the sort of idyll of Bath and Cornerstone, it's been a battle here. I mean, here we are in the sort of ideal of Christian perfection and uh, loveliness, and everyone's been so nice to everybody. I, I mean, I've been blown away by how lovely everyone is. Not. <laughs> I was going to bring a crisp update at that point, but <laughs> Richie's done the job. So when someone is rude to you, what do you do? Do you pay, pray for the Spirit's help to love in this battle, to love? When you're overlooked and ignored, what do you do? Do you pray for the power to forgive and not feel threatened? That doesn't come naturally. When you're the last to bed and there's something rather less than helpful on TV, what do you do? Do you pray for the battle for self-control, actually just turn the light off and go to bed? It's a battle between freedom and slavery. I'm free not to have to do these things. In Christ, we're freed from having to do any of these harmful and destructive things. But be encouraged. I don't want you to feel overwhelmed and doom-laden. Actually, this is meant to be an encouragement. It's a fight. That's normal. Don't despair of that. Don't give up because you haven't made perfection. No one's expecting you to. That's our goal. But remember, righteousness is received by faith not by works of the law. Do you get that yet? It's a gift. It's on a plate. It's here. Do you want it? And by the Spirit, we fight. So victory in this conflict actually is going to look like two different things. The second thing, the, the, the first of these two things, is actually fight leads might, might lead to flight. Verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Tick, tick, tick. Don't do that one. Tick, tick. I'm okay on that one. Is that how you went? I'm not going to ask which ones you did not tick. I warn you, as I did before, those who do these things and um, live like this, emphasis, live like this, will not inherit the kingdom. It's a grisly list. But what do they all have in common? Slavery. We're enslaved to them. And it's not enough to make a law against them. I mean, you can't make a law against discord. You will not have discord. You will have, uh, you know, you cannot legislate in Parliament against jealousy. I guess most of the MPs would have to recuse themselves, wouldn't they? It's not enough to make a law. And in fact, the, perverse, uh, the perversity of our natures is such that if you do make a law, it'll probably make you want to do it even more. 
I don't know if you ever go to France, but um, I know Chapa used, used to use this illustration. But, you know, sometimes in French um, trains, they have a little sign above the windows that says, Défense de cacher, which means don't spit. Never occurred to me to spit. <laughs> and then I see the sign and think, oh, Défense de cacher, okay. Mm. <laughs> the saliva builds, and you think, well, what am I going to do with this? Creating laws actually rouses the desire to break them, doesn't it? It's probably better to have no laws at all. No, I'm not going that far. But let's just, let me just pick out one or two of these things. Yeah, they're the usual ones. Yeah, preachers are always on about sex. But just think about this. Sexual immorality is, in the end, driven by my own physical desires being more important than God's good purposes. And, in fact thinking that my needs are more important than somebody else's. And a note here on pornography, especially now that it's so freely available. You know, it's being passed around primary school playgrounds. Please let me say, and I know some people look at it just out of curiosity. It's not because they're necessarily addicted to it, but, you know, people want to find out what sex is. I can tell you, you will not learn what sex is from porn. It'll destroy your view of sex. It'll turn something very good into something very ugly, abusive, and cruel. I mean, just the stats of people in the porn sex industry who end up committing suicide, you know, far outweigh any other so-called profession, pretty much. It kills and destroys, and it makes some people a lot of money rather takes the sheen off it, doesn't it? It can destroy healthy relationships. If, if that is something that troubles you, <clears throat> uh, I think one of the best books I've ever read on any sort of pastoral difficulty, but this one in particular, is by Tim Chester called Captured by a Better Vision. He manages to help you think through this thing without giving you a guilt trip. Most Christian books you read about this sort of thing basically just bludgeon you into guilt. This is brilliant because it says, well, the title says it all, Captured by a Better Vision. Or jealousy. Jealousy is, not about, is about not being content with what I have and a desperation to have what others have. It can lead to the idea of crushing the other person for my gain. It can be all-consuming and it destroys, in the end, what it uh, sees around it. Selfish ambition, again, the drive to control and manipulate others for my own benefit, regardless of its effect. Ultimately, it's a power trip. Dissensions, driven by the unwillingness of an individual or of many to contribute to the greater good of a community. It might be an unwillingness to submit to godly leadership, or it might be the abuse of leadership for one's own ends. It is utterly destructive. You see, just taking these four, they are destroyers, not creators. They're cruel. They enslave. But the lie is... They feel good, they feel right, they make you feel better. But it's like eating a McDonald's Big Mac. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but about an hour later, it really doesn't feel like a good idea, does it? <laughs> now, at the end of the, each of these, the opposite of love that faith produces, we're enslaved to them. 
And so we're to flee. To fly like the wind. Like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife in Genesis. That's the manly, courageous thing to do when confronted by temptation. And it's the womanly, courageous thing to do as well. To flee. When it comes to sin, it is spiritual to do a runner. It'll also produce a harvest. Fight, flight, and fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Imagine Cornerstone for a few days if verse 22 was 24-7. I know there are some people who feel left out. Even here, there are cliques. There are some people who feel alone, who don't really know people. I know that's happening. It's not ideal, is it? The interesting thing about this little list of the fruit is that none of them can really be exercised in isolation, can they? You can't do these on, their, on your own. <laughs> you can't legislate them for them either. You can't just sort of pass a law demanding universal gentleness. You know, the Universal Declaration of Gentleness Act. Can't see that getting much headway. How do you police it? Mm, that wasn't very gentle. <laughs> oh, sorry, I wasn't very gentle there. Or kindness. To the weaker, to the vulnerable. It's one of the things, when, when John Stott died... Um, you know, obviously, there were a lot of reflections and people writing about him. And he was a flawed man, as he knew. Um, we don't want to be hagiographical. In other words, portray him as this perfect, legendary saint. He wasn't. He was a sinner. He could be very difficult at times. I'll tell you one thing that was remarkable about him, and I don't think you get this said about many great Christian leaders. But the thing about Uncle John is that he was kind. It seems such a sort of puny idea. We don't hear about being kind and gentle as virtues very much. You know, strong leadership, people who are visionary, people who, you know, sort of gather the people and lead them into the fray. Jesus was kind and gentle. He was pretty strong where he needed to be. I think, as someone said in a seminar, Jesus wasn't very nice. He was very kind. A mark of the Spirit is that we more become like him. I mean, verse 22 and 23, that describes Jesus to a T, doesn't it? Incidentally, I'm going to go on a few minutes later because we started a bit later. Is that all right? If you object, you can leave now. <laughs> this is the fruit of the Spirit. And fruit is an organic thing. It, it grows. I can't create an apple, but I can water an apple tree. We work with the Spirit, we pray to the Spirit, we rely on the Spirit and long that He might grow in us these things. Sometimes I need to repent and say, Lord, I wasn't very kind there yesterday, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Forgive my failure. But the wonderful thing is I know you're kind, I know your grace, and I know you forgive failures like me, which is why I can come back to you and ask for your help. Grace accepts failures, but it never leaves us in the same place. 
remember the woman caught in adultery, about to be stoned? The man, presumably, she was having adultery with, nowhere to be seen. It was just this woman. She was lying there. Let him who cast the first stone uh, uh, have no sin. They all slope off. What does he say to her? Woman, sin no more. That act of grace and kindness would have transformed her life. She wasn't going to go back. It doesn't leave us where we are, but it finds us where we are. Grace deals with failures. Uh, we, this is a tightrope, isn't it? And, and it's overwhelming, these challenges. And, and you're sitting there thinking, I can't do this, and I'm standing here and I know I'm a hypocrite. Even the last 24 hours, I've seriously botched up. And we can't do it. We're enslaved. But in God, uh, in Christ, God has defeated sin, and by His Spirit, He has adopted us as His sons, whether we're women or men, slaves or free, Gentiles or Jews. We're all sons who are co-heirs with Christ, and the Spirit takes residence, not squatting. And it's a partnership that begins with an obligation. Not an obligation out of fear. Not an obligation out of being worried I might lose it but an obligation because I know I'm loved, like the soldier with Harry. He really wanted to do this. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. And this leads neatly into chapter 6, which I'm going to cover very quickly. Paul draws all these threads together because we've thought about who I am with God, we've thought about who I am in myself with the, the, the fight and the, the, the fleeing and the fruit, and now we extend to thinking about how I live with others. What will this community be like? Well, we're to live together in grace because we're free. We've been shown grace. This is the opposite of a legalistic community. So what happens in a, in a, a grace-filled community? Well, firstly, we know how to deal with one another's sin. A legalist will condemn and reject those who fail the community standards, whether they're biblical or not. They'll say, sorry, you're out. They'll give them nasty looks and make them feel small and rubbish. But that's not grace. Look at verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, because you also may be tempted by the same thing. And I take it by restoring someone gently. There's no timetable here. We're very quick to put timetables on people's repentance, aren't we? And we say, okay, well, that was a terrible thing. We love you, but we really think you should have sorted that out by a week on Thursday, and then you can come back. Now, that's not license. It's not treating sin as unimportant. The operative words are restore gently. There is something to be restored from, but a legalist will never do that. The legalist is too focused on being good and so will always despise those who fail. But a spirit-filled person of grace will always restore gently. Why? Because he or she knows their own weakness and knows that they could equally fall into the same trap. There's a story I love, I think I've used it before, but um, of an Irish priest uh, um, who um, was taking, uh, had a curate who started working with him, 
And there was someone in the congregation who um, uh, had really messed up in their life. And, you know, things had really gone supremely badly. They'd made terrible decisions. All kinds of things had just blown up. It was just, a, it was just carnage. And they were walking to this man's house, and, and the senior pastor said to the junior guy, said, um, just out of interest, um, let's say the man's name is Fred for the sake of argument, could, could you ever see yourself in, in Fred's position, you know, messed up like Fred? And the young curate thought for a minute and said, well, no, I'm not sure that I can actually, thinking about it. I mean, it's, it's terrible, I feel very sorry for him, but I'm not... Not sure I could. At which point the senior pastor said, well, in that case, I think it's better you go home and I'll go alone. Because I don't think what you have to say will be very helpful. Watch out, because you also may be tempted. There but for the grace of God go I. That is not just a catchphrase we wheel out. It really is true. Secondly, we will know what to do with one another's burdens. A legalist will not be inclined to help others unless there are brownie points involved. It'll never be for others' benefits. It'll be for their own. But even worse, if legalism is always about my own efforts, then actually at its heart, there's no real incentive to help anybody else. They're on their own. It's about them pulling up their bootstraps. But just as God offered grace, so we offer others grace. Verse 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. You see, kindness and love and gentleness and patience are motivated by the realization that none of us can do anything on our own. Just as we need grace, so we need one another's grace. But just as God offers us grace, so we should offer grace. And that's liberating because it means I can support other people knowing that they will support me. I hope. Finally, one another's growth. Community life can degenerate into competitiveness far too easily, can't they? We're threatened by others' success or secretly delight in others' failures. That's definitely true of the legalist because legalism is all about the pecking order with God. Have I climbed the ladder? It's inherently competitive. Isn't that why people measure themselves against Stalin and Mother Teresa? I'm not like that. Oh, I'm not quite like her, but I'm somewhere here. But a community of grace couldn't care less about pecking orders and comparisons. For we're all equally saved by Christ. So he goes on, verse 3, If anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each should test their own actions. They can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Now you think that's contradictory what he's just said. Carry one another's loads and carry your own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructors. In other words, we share one another's joys, we give everything we can, we carry one another's loads where we can, we share the good things we have learned, and where we have the strength to carry others, we do so. 
It's not exploitation. You know, it could be just saying, well, everyone's got to share one another's burden, so therefore I don't need to carry my own burden. I can expect others to do it. That's exploitation and presumption. No, we are responsible for ourselves, but in a grace community, we're not thinking about ourselves because others are. Paul has brought us from the track of our works to the track of grace when we have faith in him. That's what brings the transformation. The call not to be deceived in verse 7 comes ultimately from realizing we've got nothing to prove to God. He knows what we're like. He knows where we've come from and what our passions and desires seek. He still loves us. So we're going to sum up Galatians in just two things. There are the two tracks. There, did you like that? I made that man move. (laughs) And he's moved by faith. (laughs) The only way to go from one track, the life of works, to the track of grace is by faith. So, two things. This is what we're going to do together. I need you to help me do it. You need need me. We're all in this together. Unlike David Cameron, we really are all in this together. (laughs) Galatians, Londoners, all souls, people, we are free. So, walk in the Spirit. Verse 9, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those to the family, uh, to, uh, who belong to the family of believers. I love this. It's so open-ended, isn't it? He doesn't actually tell us what this good is. Just do good. And that's quite alarming too, because it means you can never tick off all the boxes and say, right, I've done good today. Yeah, I've done the good. I can now go and watch West Wing. No, do good. And and it's not just to believers. It's to all people. To love our Muslim neighbor in London, in the world. Our Hindu neighbor, our atheist neighbor, our new vitriolic atheist neighbor. All souls needs to love the BBC and the embassies in W1 and those who are creating video games. I mean, W1 is one of the world centers for creating computer games. Did you know that? And special effects in movies. Now, more special effects, as far as I understand it, are being created in W1 than in Hollywood. Hollywood movies come to London to get their special effects done. Do we love them? Do good to all people. I don't know what that good is. I don't know how you do good to a special effects person. Maybe someone here can, who knows how to do good to one of those types. But anyway, you know, do good, whatever that good is to all, but especially to the brothers and sisters, especially when persecuted for their faith. Don't be weary. Of course we get weary, but it's a battle. The Spirit is with us. It is Spirit-led. It is Spirit-empowered love. This has nothing to do with whether you're a charismatic or not. It's to do with whether you're a Christian or not. Finally, 
boast in the cross. The thing that matters more than anything is this. After all the debates with the Judaizers, the legalists, the gnomists, the racialists, after all the sort of seemingly remote and ridiculous debates about whether you should be circumcised or not, and who you should have supper with, it all boils down to this, the cross. Verse 14, may I never, ever, ever boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's why tomorrow on our last day we're going to think about why the cross is everything. Because if righteousness could be gained through works of the law, then Christ died for nothing. But we believe that Christ died for everything. That is why we boast in it. That is where we find grace. And that is where we are free at last. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may we never boast except in the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us poured himself up for us, was rich but made himself poor for us, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited or taken advantage for us, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a human being, becoming even a slave and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, you exalted him to the highest place and called on all to bow the knee and give him glory forever and ever. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power because you made all things and worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory, honor, and power. May we never boast in anything except the cross. Amen. Sorry we're late. Get into your groups. If you don't have a group...